The response to last week's message was mixed. And the more I thought about the responses that I heard, the more I knew I had to postpone part five of the series and continue the same theme to clear some things up. Response number one, a lady called me on the phone about, well, as soon as I got back to my office, she said she was not a Baptist and that this was the first time in her, her coming to this church and that she was mad and glad at what she heard. Once upon a time, a man had said to her, you become a Baptist and doesn't matter what you do after that, you'll be saved. And she said she knew that wasn't right because it says in Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. And so she said, I was really amazed and glad to hear you say that it's not just one single act of accepting Christ on a night during an invitation that saves, but rather it is a continuing ongoing life of faith that brings us into the kingdom of God. But she was not happy that I had said... Justification depends on a lifetime of faith because it was her understanding that justification is instantaneous on that first act of faith. And I said, I think I agree. But I don't think the two truths rule each other out. Response number two was, right back there, a Bethel student said, why don't you tell us a little bit what that life where the Holy Spirit is reigning, overcoming the law of sin and death, looks like? And response number three was, could you give us some practical guidelines for how we can come to experience that life where the Holy Spirit is liberating from the power of sin? So... That's what I want to do this morning is answer those three responses as well as I can in the time that we have. Number one, clarify how I think we come to be justified. And two, describe what the life looks like where the law of the spirit of life is liberating from the law of sin and death. And number three, what are some practical helps for how a person wanting that very much can have it. Now, the best thing I think we can do is is summarize very briefly what we said last week. The text for last week, which I'd like you to look up because I'm going to be continuing in it two more verses, is Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. I argued from Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, that the reason that those who are in Christ Jesus now have no condemnation is because, as verse 2 says, the law of the spirit of life or the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed them from the power of sin and death. In other words, freedom from condemnation really is dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives freeing us from the power of sin. Then I compared Romans 5 verse 1, which says a little differently, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. And I tried to do two things. Looking at Romans 4 and James 2, I argued that the faith which justifies is not merely the simple initial act, 
but rather an ongoing life of faith, arguing from the life of Abraham. And then the second thing we did was look at Galatians 3, 1 to 5. And I argued from that that the way the Holy Spirit comes into our life and is active is through faith. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or through the hearing of faith? Answer, through the hearing of faith. And I argued that these two conditions, faith justifies and walking by the Holy Spirit or having the Holy Spirit overcome the law of sin and death as a means of justification are not two conditions, but one condition because the Holy Spirit becomes active through faith. Now, what I did not clarify adequately is this. How in the world can Romans 5.1 make justification a past finished act as it seems to having been justified by faith let us have peace with God and yet Romans 8 2 make it dependent on a present or ongoing process of sanctification that's what wasn't clear and that's what caused a problem I'm sure not just for one person I believe that woman who called me is right Namely, that God justifies us on the basis of that first act of saving faith instantaneously. I have to say this on the basis of several texts. Romans 5, 9, for example. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more then shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. At least three texts then, 5.1 in Romans and 5.9 and 1 Corinthians 6.11, picture justification as a past, finished event. And that might seem strange then if Paul comes along in Romans 8.2 and makes no condemnation dependent upon a present ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives liberating us from sin. How can that be? It would be strange if justification were only a past event. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you on the day of judgment, in the future, on the day of judgment, men will render an account for every careless word they utter. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Therefore, according to Matthew 12, 36 and 37, justification is future. It is the acquittal that we will receive at the bar of God's judgment at the end of this age, not something that's present. Paul thinks the same thing. Galatians 5, verses 4 and 5. Listen carefully to the way he argues here. He says to the Galatians, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace, for through the Spirit by faith we wait for the hope of righteousness. And notice that he's contrasting you who would be justified by the law and we who wait for justification. Or the hope of righteousness, the same thing. So Paul himself 
agrees with Jesus that justification is yet future to be experienced at the end of the age. So what we have in Scripture, if we take the whole into account, is not so strange when we think about it and stand back. There is coming at the end of the age a judgment day. And the most important thing in the world is that all of us hear the sentence, not guilty, on the judgment day. That we be acquitted for our sins. And so it's fitting to describe justification as a future event of acquittal at that judgment day. But the unique thing about the New Testament and the thing that sets the New Testament off from the Old Testament and sets Christianity off from Judaism is that the Messiah has already come and that through his death and resurrection, God has so decisively dealt with sin that those who are in Christ by faith can be said to already be justified. That is, that final sentence has in a sense been passed upon them already. We don't need to wait till the end to find out how God is disposed towards us. We know we have a promise. If you trust me, you'll be justified. So, when we look at Paul's two different ways now of describing the basis of justification or the means by which we come to enjoy it, what we find is this. When he refers to justification as a, as a past, instantaneous declaration of our acquittal, he makes the condition the first act of faith. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. But... When Paul pictures justification as a process or a present experience or a future declaration, he makes the condition, the ongoing life of faith. We wait through faith by the Holy Spirit for that. Or we are not condemned for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is freeing or has freed us from the law of of sin and death. Now, I think the reason that he can use both of these, the first act of faith as the ground of that initial justification and the ongoing life of faith as the basis of that future justification is this. When God attends to that first act of saving faith, he sees in it, as it were, the seeds from which all subsequent acts of faith will spring up. When a person bows his head and confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and accepts him into his heart as Savior, God views that initial act of faith not merely for itself alone, but for its implied continuance. God can see what faith genuinely plugs into Christ and what faith is a sham. And he attends to the faith as if contained in it or implied in it were all subsequent acts of faith enduring to the end. So that he can say both, you are justified by this act of faith and you will not be justified unless you continue in faith and not contradict himself. I think Paul is consistent in that way. Now, what I want to do is approach uh, 
the problem of the relationship between the Holy Spirit and law and love by proceeding two verses farther in Romans 8. So read with me Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, does not verse 4 make it plain that the reason God dealt with sin the way he did in the death of his son Jesus was to enable people to fulfill the just requirement of the law. That's what that verse 4 means when it starts with, in order that. He dealt with sin in Jesus in order that we might fulfill the just requirement of the law. The main problem with the law, according to verse 3, is that it didn't have the power to overcome our flesh, that is, our old sinful nature. The teachings of the law, the requirements of the law, were perfectly good. But they were, in general, ineffective. They did not have the power to create the life that they commanded. But now, according to verses 3 and 4, God has made a way for the just requirement of the law to be fulfilled. How has he done it? He has sent his son and condemned sin or paid the penalty for sin and then on the basis of that sacrifice poured out his spirit into the lives of his people who then, walking according to the spirit, are enabled to fulfill the just requirement of the law, according to verse 4. So a crucial question for us then in the sequence of thought here is, What is the just requirement of the law? What is it that fulfills the law when we walk according to the Holy Spirit? I think that's the same way of asking what that student asked me last time at the end. Tell us what this life looks like where the law of the spirit of life is defeating or liberating from the law of sin and death. I think Paul gives the answer to what the just requirement of the law is in verse 8 through 10 of chapter 13 of Romans. I love that swish. Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love fulfills the law. And I conclude, therefore, at least tentatively, that the just requirement of the law that we fulfill by walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh is simply loving our neighbor. Now, Paul had learned this from Jesus, hadn't he? You remember Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, uh, 
What's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment in the law. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. And everything else in the Old Testament is explanation. Right? He said it differently in Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish that men would do to you, do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That's it. The Old Testament in a nutshell. Now, I think, therefore, that we may fairly, safely say that when Paul said, if you walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, you will fulfill the just requirement of the law, he meant you will love your neighbor as yourself and therefore do everything that the, that the Old Testament was trying to get us to do. And this fits perfectly with Galatians, and I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Here we see the law, the Spirit, and love related in the same way that we've seen it already, but we get something new in Galatians. We get some real practical help as to how to go about experiencing this in our lives. Galatians chapter 5, look at verses 13 and 14 that Tom read for us earlier. You are called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then, seven or eight verses later, one of the most familiar passages in the book, the fruit of the Spirit is Love. So we put it all together, and what do we see? Same as in Romans. The Holy Spirit works in the life, produces the fruit of love, which fulfills the just requirement of the law. Now, the upshot of seeing that set of connections in biblical teaching is this. Now we can say much more precisely what that life is that I said last week was required if we are to be acquitted at the judgment day. Paul said that those who are in Christ have no condemnation because the Holy Spirit is releasing them from the power of sin and death. But now we know from Romans 8, 4, 13, 10, Galatians 5, 14, and 22, now we know that what the Holy Spirit produces when he liberates from the power of sin and death, is love. And therefore we can say, the person who is not loving, who does not love the people from day to day that he passes by, will not be acquitted at the judgment day. Period. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in his letter, chapter 2, verse 12, Speak and act as those who who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy 
to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Which is just another way of saying, isn't it, what Jesus taught in the parable of the unforgiving servant? You remember the parable. There's this slave who owes the king $10 million. And he's on his way to jail because he can't pay it back till he pays the last farthing. And he begs for mercy, and the king offers him forgiveness and turns him loose, scot-free. And he goes out and on his way home wrings the neck of one of his fellow servants who owes him two dollars. And the king hears about it and is enraged and sends his officers and takes that fellow and claps him in jail and says, not until he pays the last farthing will he get out. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you who does not forgive his brother from his heart. Hard man, Jesus Christ. If we are unmerciful, unforgiving people, if we hold grudges or cherish resentments, then what we are saying in effect to God is this. God, this is the way I like life to be. I like holding grudges. I like resentments. I like to pay back, tit for tat. And you know what God's going to say? You can have it on the judgment day. And that's exactly the way he'll treat us. If Christ has not changed us, and I do not mean perfection. That was clear last Sunday, wasn't it? I don't believe it's possible to be perfect in this age. But change towards Christ-likeness, if Christ has not changed us, we have not known him. 1 John 2, 3 says, by this we know that we've known him. If we keep his commandments, which are all summed up in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the third response from last week becomes crucial, doesn't it? What are some ways that we can have this life? Life and death hangs on whether we have this life. Now, we've already seen that love is a fruit of the Spirit. When you are wronged, and you forgive and return good for evil. When you are patient with the ornery and tender with the weak and helpful to the needy. When you welcome strangers into your home and into this church. And when you eliminate luxuries from your life and give what you don't need to Christ's mission in the world. Then you know. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life. But since love is a, a product of the Holy Spirit, a fruit of the Holy Spirit of God, is there anything we can do to bring it about? Indeed, there is. God has established it that his sovereign work in the life to produce love always accompanies saving faith. Now, this is clear from two texts in Galatians, and these are very, very important. So I want you to listen carefully. The first one we saw last week, Galatians 3, 5, 
Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Answer, of course, by the hearing of faith. The Spirit comes and the Spirit works through faith. And this is exactly now what we're going to find when we plug the word love in here. That means, doesn't it, that since love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, therefore the Holy Spirit produces love through faith. Galatians 5, verse 6. One of the most important verses in the Bible for understanding the relationship between faith and works. Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail. Now, Let me stop there and remind you that this comes right after those first two verses we read earlier about don't try to be justified by the law, wait for the hope of righteousness. Justification's at stake here. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail. Don't try to be justified by, by legal rights of circumcision. But faith working through love. Now, if all we knew was that faith, that love was a fruit of the Holy Spirit, we might be hard put to say, how can I plug in to this spiritual power so the Holy Spirit produces love in me? But now we know that love is an inevitable accompaniment or outworking of genuine faith. And that is something that we can do. That's the way to be plugged into the power of God Faith, And I want to close with two illustrations of how this works in the life. Now, try to rid your mind of the conception of faith that says saving faith is simply bowing your head and asking Jesus into your heart. That's the the first step of faith. But you'll never make sense out of Galatians 5, 6 if that's all you think saving faith is. Hebrews 11.1 says, very plainly, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And if you lose that dimension of saving faith, you can't make sense out of how sanctification relates to justification. Faith has to do with the future. When you believe that God has promised something, then you've got saving faith. What God promised today, you believe is going to happen today. What God has promised for eternity, you believe is going to come true in eternity. That's saving faith. Now, example number one. It comes from Hebrews. Probably just listen instead of looking it up. It might save us some time. Hebrews chapter 10, though, you can note it. Verses 32 to 36. What the author is doing here is reminding these weak need. Old-time Christians who are, have grown weary in the faith of how they used to love one another. And you'll see how they did. And he tells them the motive by which, back then, they did that love. Here's what he says. Recall the former days. Maybe I should say that to some of you. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on the prisoners, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now get the picture here. 
Persecution had hit the church. Some had been thrown into jail. Some had been persecuted in other ways. What would the people do who had not been thrown into jail? Would they withdraw into secrecy and keep themselves separate so that they wouldn't be caught? Or would they align themselves with their brothers and sisters at the risk of losing their very property and maybe their lives? Answer, they loved their brothers and they identified with them and their property was plundered. They loved them. Now, by what power? How did they have the motivation inside to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also? Where'd that power come from? Next phrase. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you yourselves knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. So don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Where did the power come from? Where did that inner drive to lay the life down for a brother come from? It came from faith. Not that past initial acceptance of Christ, but that future confidence that what God had promised would come true. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. They held on to that. God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. They held on to that. And when they held on to it, they were liberated for love. They did not have to be anxious about anything, even though it might have cost them their life and probably did cost some of their lives. Faith always produces love. If it isn't, it isn't real. One more example. 1 Corinthians 13, very famous love chapter, says, Love does not keep an account of wrongs. Love holds no grudges. Love does not cherish resentments. Love does not try to get back. Are you, are you planning right now to get back at somebody who recently insulted you? Does your mind, every time you think of this person, just savor how it's going to be? How you are going to get one up on them? Do you feel bitterness towards your employer because he wronged you in some way? Do you respond to your husband and his insensitivity tit for tat, jab for jab on the way to church in the morning or at night? If you do, you don't believe God's promises. You know why? Because this is what God promised in Romans 12:19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him drink. Do you believe that promise? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do not take vengeance into your own hands. Do you see how obedience and love is connected with believing the promises? Does not that promise imply, Paul thinks it did, that we should not consider vengeance our prerogative. It's God's. We leave it to Him, just like Jesus did. Whether we love and forgive or whether we desire 
vengeance and keep an account of wrongs depends on whether we trust him or not. That's all. Do we believe his promises? Do you believe God? Do you believe that he will withhold no good thing from you if you walk uprightly? Even if you have to lay down your life, no good thing will be withheld from you. Do you believe that he will vindicate you in the end and right every wrong in this universe so that you don't have to? If we believe these promises, I tell you, a tidal wave of love would be unleashed in this congregation. No more grudges, no matter what anybody's done to you. You can't say, but they did this. It doesn't matter. It's gone. It's gone if you believe the promise of God. No more backing off from service, but an, a stampede of volunteers for Wednesday night and Sunday morning and visitation and everything else. No more miserly nitpicking about whether people in America can afford to tithe, but instead an unloosing of the sluice gates of wealth in this church to pass through it out into the mission fields of this world. God only knows what could happen in a church riding on the tidal wave of that kind of love. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, John said, and the reason it is is because faith is the power of the Holy Spirit working through love. 